On this episode of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, we have Erin Forward, and she is joined by her colleague, uh, Karen McWaters, who is an OT. And both Karen and Erin uh, both were part of our Dynamic Duos Summit for the MetaSLP Collective. And if you're interested in hearing their entire talk that you can get for ASHA CEUs, please check it out at metaslpcollective.com forward slash summit. Uh, but we did an entire Dynamic Duos Summit all based around an SLP and an interdisciplinary colleague. So uh, in this case, Erin and her colleague Karen will be chatting about um, patients in play and peds, meaning making makes the difference. So uh, really excited to hear their talk. And I hope you really enjoy this episode. And please check out the summit if you're interested in hearing more of their conversation. Erin Forward is an SLP and certified lactation counselor. She works as an SLP at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center in an outpatient setting, working mainly with AAC, autism, and as part of their feeding team. She has advanced training in pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders, early language, AAC, and trauma, specifically for medically complex children. She is a regular co-host of First Bite, a speech therapy podcast with Michelle Dawson, Michelle Dawson, where she shares her experiences and evidence-based practices from her time working in early intervention, home health, NICU, PICU, GI clinic, and outpatient clinic settings. For her dedication to the field, she was awarded an ASHA Distinguished Early Career Professional Certificate in 2021 and is a graduate of the ASHA Leadership Development Program. And also joining her on this episode is Karen McWaters. She's an OT who graduated from Georgia State University with her master's in occupational therapy in 2018. And she has entered into the post-professional doctorate program of occupational therapy at the Medical University of South Carolina. She lives and works in outpatient pediatric school-based and EI settings in Greenville, South Carolina. She is a regular lecturer for a local undergraduate early education programs and an adjunct professor at Presbyterian College in the entry-level OTD programs. Her special interests lie in working with neurodiverse, neurodevelopmental populations, learning differences, visual processing differences, and childhood trauma. She has experience with many treatment approaches, including sensory integration, praxis, and functional vision. She is trust-based relational intervention trained provider and holds a certificate of proficiency in the DIR floor time approach. She loves that this job enables partnerships with families to meet each child's unique needs and harnesses the power of relationships to impact each kid's life. And I hope you all enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and founder of the MetaSLP Collective and MetaSLP Education. This podcast is dedicated to delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere, while also recognizing that medical SLPs everywhere are doing the best with what they've got. Whether you are a new clinician seeking tangible tools for therapy or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is simple, to help you advance your practice without feeling overwhelmed or underappreciated. This means that together we'll build confidence, broaden your knowledge, and reignite your passion for our field. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride and be open to new ideas because at the end of the day, you and your patients deserve that kind of support. With that, let's dive in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good morning, Karen and Aaron. Karen and Aaron. Yeah, it makes it easy. <laughs> 
<laughs> I just noticed that. Oh my gosh. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. How are you guys doing this morning? We're good. Yeah. I tried to go to my favorite coffee shop, but the line was too long. So oh. I was really upset. All the regulars. I was like, you guys aren't regulars. Why are you here? <laughs> I know. Bummer. I know. I know. I have a coffee shop right in front of my office and then they just put in a Dollar Tree on the other side of it too. So now there's like way more traffic at the Dollar Tree and at Starbucks. Mm-hmm. Oh, but you guys don't all get to come here now. So no. anyways, welcome you guys. I'm so excited to have this chat. Um, yeah, Erin, tell the people a little bit about yourself. Who are you? So my name is Erin Forward. I am a pediatric speech pathologist and certified lactation counselor. I work at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, uh, working on their feeding team and also seeing a lot of autistic patients and patients that are non-speaking. I have experience in home health, early intervention, outpatient, NICU, PICU, GI clinic. So I've kind of seen kids in every setting. And Karen and I were lucky enough to work together for three years um, in clinics that were right next to each other. So I've learned a lot from her. We've shared a lot of patients and she's kind of led me on this journey of child-led, floor-time, play-based therapy that I think is helpful with any of our kids. So um, she's kind of my partner in crime, which is nice to have in an OT. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. I love to hear that. All right. Karen, tell us a little bit about yourself. So my name is Karen McWaters. I'm a pediatric OT. I am still based in South Carolina and Erin moved to Cincinnati without me, which is okay. (laughs) I have worked in, in home, in school, clinic settings, EI, a little bit of everything except for inpatient. So that's, um, the little bit of a difference between Erin and I. And I always think it's funny that Erin says I led her down this journey of play-based thing because we really led each other. We started at the exact same time. At the companies that we ended up working for side by side, we started within like two months of each other. And then um, we started this journey together. And part of what we're going to talk about today is one of the kids that brought us um, through that journey. Awesome. I'm also very excited because I vividly remember listening to Swallow Your Pride on the way to my grad school practicum when I was seeing adults in a long-term acute care hospital. And I was learning so much. I was like, this is awesome. I get to listen to this on my drive. And I called Michelle Dawson and I was like, Michelle, I love listening to you. You need to do something in pediatrics because what Teresa is doing is so phenomenal. And like Michelle called me next day and was like, let's call it first bite and let's do this. So Swallow Your Pride literally was like the catalyst for Michelle and I's journey. And I'm so grateful. So like to be on the Swallow Your Pride podcast is like a very full circle moment. I love that. I told Karen, I was like, Karen, this is so exciting. Oh, thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's been you a very, You were very big. Like, I feel like you, like what you've done for our field and like the engine, like you've had a lot of really great ideas that I think have led a lot of people in, in directions to be like, Oh, I can do that. Like that's something we can do. So I'm very grateful for all the things that you have done. Thank you. Thank you. Sometimes I just like sit in my office here. I'm like, does anybody listen to me? Is anybody <laughs> what I have to say? Like, I just write all these ideas down and I'm like, is this a good idea? I don't know. <laughs> we'll try it. We'll try. Yeah. But you've tried it, which is why people are like, wait, That's so cool. I can do that too. Yeah. Oh, well, I love it. I mean, I, you know, I think, you know, my story with my son and just Mm -hmm. motivation behind everything. And it's just so hard to like find this information out there, you know, and it, and it's so, I just love what you and Michelle do. And, you know, you guys have my mommy heart by the heartstrings. So I just love everything you guys do too. So 
Anyways, big mush moment. Thank you. Yeah. Guys. All right. We'll get that out of the yes. way. Yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. Let's dive into it. What are we, what are we talking about today? So Karen and I, a lot of what we talk about is what we've learned in the clinic and how we've kind of had these experiences and had these like light bulb moments of, oh, wait, this connects with this. What you, what I'm doing in regards to language and speech is connecting to what you're working on in regards to motor development and regulation and sensory, which I am a big proponent of OTs don't own sensory. And we play a huge role in regulation because communication is incredibly regulating. And as Karen always says, sensory is neuro. So if we are supposed to understand neuro, we are supposed to understand sensory. So we would have and we're going to talk specifically about one patient we worked with, but we, our story is that we shared this, this autistic patient and I, we saw him each for two hours a week. So I would pass him off to Karen one day of the week and Karen would pass him off to me. And so after a while we started obviously explaining what was happening in our sessions and started connecting these moments like, Oh wait, I'm seeing this growth in his language and you're seeing this growth in his ability to sequence movements and his ability to plan more tasks in play and sequence more aspects of play. And then we started to to learn from each other. And I was able to take things that she was doing to help him grow in his play schemas. And she was able to take things that helped him grow in his language. And they, they really seemed to go parallel from each other. And one thing we also loved was this idea of embodied cognition and how we can embody this meaning and language and help expand this language and play. And it was so beautiful, our ability to help children understand themselves more, understand their body, understand what they were feeling and, and explain that. And our favorite phrase to use and our favorite phrase that kids would say is, I have an idea. And when our kids would start to say, I have an idea, and we would help them work through that idea is that circle of praxis and also what kids need for language. And I mean, we would cry after sessions because of the the magic that we were starting to see happen. And, and we were like, there's something to this. We have to find the, and we are very intentional about the courses that we take and, and we love research. And so we were digging deeper into these articles from psychology, from OT, from speech, because so much of what we were doing wasn't just housed in the speech pathology literature. And so that's something I'm so grateful for learning from Karen is like, how do I feel comfortable understanding how OTs, because they write articles different than speech does. Every discipline kind of has their own way of writing. And so how do I understand the frameworks that OTs are using to write their articles? How am I understanding better the framework that psychology is using so I can better learn from them? Because we have so much to learn from them too. Yeah. It's so funny you say that. My daughter, who's three now, and um, she's probably going to solve all the world's problems, oh. but she like, said so many times to me this morning, I have an idea. And I was like, okay, what is your idea? She said it probably like 10 times. And at first I was like, that's so cute. But I'm like, oh my gosh, I love that her little brain is like, saying these mm-hmm. I just think of her like at school with her little friends, like with their just imaginations running wild. So I love that you just said that. Well, and so many of our neurodivergent children and our medically complex children have these ideas, but know that they can't always make them come yeah. to fruition, whether it's their motor deficits or their language deficits. We want them to feel like 
we can use your skills within your zone of proximal development to help these ideas come to fruition and help your imagination grow and help you feel like you have success in what's going on in that beautiful brain of yours. Very much like a Horton Hears the Who, like a person's a person, no matter how small. And when you work with the neurodivergent community, you learn very quickly that embodied cognition is real. You just might not understand the words or the way that they use to communicate it. And so your job as a clinician is to use your scope of practice to uncover who they are, right? Because they are a person no matter how small. And so um, you cannot do that alone, right? No one discipline has all of the answers. If they did, we would all be out of a job. And so um, partnering with Aaron really taught me about the process the brain goes through in order to create language. And then also taught me about just the role that language can really play and that development um, and play is not is not separate from, nor is it the same thing as communication. They are the same, but also different. But then that means that my role as a, as an occupational therapist, when I'm targeting play is to know about that communication piece, right? Because that's such a key piece of that. I may not feel like it's my entire scope to focus on that, right? But it's my obligation to understand what is going into this play. If I'm going to target the occupation of play, then I need to know, you know, what ingredients are in that alphabet soup and and also know how to work together, you know, Mm -hmm. because if you are working separately, it makes such a big difference, in a patient's care. And then also in family training, I mean, it's it unified approach makes such a big difference. And Aaron and I just had the privilege of being able to collaborate directly on a patient for four hours a week for like a year and a half, right? We saw this kid twice a week, back-to-back sessions for a year and a half, and then also saw other children. But that one kid was the one that taught us he really taught us like it really wasn't us it was him and his brain that taught us how to in the words of floor time weight watch wonder about what what is going on in his brain and how does he perceive the world and where does his body and his brain meet right because that's our area to interface with him is where his body and his brain meet then we can meet him there right and it was um, so fun and honestly an honor. Like every kid we work with is honestly an honor to be able to see who they are, not just what they can do, right? Yeah. Stuff is also fascinating to me. It was like, it was so far off my radar for the longest time. And then when COVID hit, we just saw these behaviors of my son that like, we had never seen before. And it was just because he was so out of his routine. It was when they shut down and you know, he went from having 24 therapy sessions a week to none. And we ended up getting him into this PT clinic down in Florida. We came down for him to get into. And they said, well, we have this special sensory intensive camp that we think he would do great in. And I was like, wait, what? And like, I felt so stupid that I didn't know much about this, but like the way they educated me on it and how it all fits together with his 
language and communication and feeding, I was like, I was totally mind blown. I was like, what is this stuff? Like Mm -hmm. it was a whole new world to me, but it made so much sense, like the way that they explained it. And then, yeah, I mean, the results we just saw from him, they were just great. I mean, and he's, I'd say for the most part, I'd say probably 80% of the time, he's so just calm and regulated now, which was so not how he was during COVID. It was just crazy. But you know, what's interesting is they did end up giving him an autism diagnosis, which at first I had a hard time with because I just didn't, I didn't see it. And, and I don't know if that's just me being a naive mom or, and I wasn't sure, you know, because he has this, this rare chromosomal abnormality. So I attributed mm-hmm. everything to that, but they're like, no, there's an autism component here too. And I was like, huh, but the doors that that's unlocked as far as access to different services and stuff. I'm so grateful for. And what's so interesting is, you know, like what you said, Karen, he's totally made up his own language. Like he doesn't like traditional ASL. He made up, he made up all his own new signs. Like he has his own little sign language. And then in his device too, like his SLP is like, I cannot figure out this like motor pattern, but he's created this motor. (laughs) And so it's so fascinating to see like, what he's created in his brain and that they've been able to pull out and how he communicates with us. And it's just not, it's not typical. That's the only way I can, I can put it, mm-hmm. but it's, it's his way and it's, it's great and it's working and it's, it's working for all of us. So. Well, and I had to learn too, because I think, especially in the speech pathology world, when we go to grad school, like you make a lesson plan and you, you want to know what to expect when something's going to happen. So to feel comfortable just take a step back and just watch the child and try, you know, a lot of what we do in floor time is, is, and they're going to tell us I'm saying the wrong word. We refer to it as mirroring, but I'm doing what the child is doing, not only to just show you I'm here with you, but also so I can understand if I turn my head and look at something, it actually does look kind of cool the way that you're looking at it. Like I, I get why you're wanting to do that to see how you're playing with, those stacking cups that, that uh, occupational therapists use a lot to put things in. Like when a kid picks it up and puts it in their mouth, you're like, no, 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 wait. But like, it does look like a cup that you drink from. So I understand the connection that you're making. And I really value this connection that you're making. So how do I start to get into a child's world and recognize how they're seeing it first? Because I'm the professional. My job is not to make the child more like me. My job is to And I say this even with feeding therapy, when a family comes into my office, if I go into their home, wherever, my job is first to understand them. I think we jump too quickly to, I want to give you recommendations and fix the problem. Like first, this family and this child just want to feel understood. How do I get into your world? How do I recognize what the family's going through? And how do I, as the person that's supposed to understand feeding and language and development, first get us on the same page and meet them where they're at? And for the child that we worked with, I, we really had to take a step back. I think when we first started seeing him, he had some single words Few, a few like, single words. I, but, but they were scattered and not consistently used. So, it, and as we started working with him, probably could have had an apraxia diagnosis as well. That also was, um, ran in his family. So some of that motor planning with language was also very difficult. Right. And as his language skills developed too, he wouldn't consistently say the same word the same way. So then we had a lot of questions about whether or not there was apraxia in there because it just seemed like he would get 
like the sequencing of the sounds would get out of order and he would be confused by himself sometimes. But our goal was to give him enough tools to be able to reroute around that, right? That like you have more than one communication tool in your belt. And from my perspective as an OT, it was a problem solving adaptability thing, right? And that I know that the environment is not going to be the same every time. So I need your brain to learn how to adapt so that you are successful and the environment shifting doesn't limit you as a person, right? And so Aaron and I, uh, we started on a swing for weeks, right? (laughs) And we'll talk more about this little kid and and show videos at the Med SLP Summit too, but um, weeks and weeks on a swing. And that's where we heard the, the first time we heard the word no was on the swing, which is the first thing I, the first thing I want to make sure that any child I work with can say no. Like I want to make sure that they have a consistent way of telling me no. That's the most important thing because I want to know where their boundaries are. And, and I'm so passionate about, especially our really medically complex children that have such little control over their bodies. Like I'm going to be so receptive and pick up on these little communications that maybe them telling me no. And we know in communication, like, especially with infants, their communication starts out as just these behaviors that aren't intentional. They're splaying their hands out. They're desatting, unfortunately, if they're feeding because their body says this is too much and we respond to it and build this attachment. And so for some of our kids, we have to think about going back to that place of when they were that young from a sensory standpoint, from a language standpoint, to read these cues to help them understand you have control over your body. You can say no, and I'm going to value that because they deserve that just as much as anybody else. And so that's like, number one, you tell me no, and I respond to that. You might not always, you know, kids don't always get whatever they want just because they say it, but I want you to know I heard you. And maybe the answer is, I heard you say no, this is why we're doing this, but they're going to know I heard that. Right. And then also that, like, just that development of like agency that their, their communication has an impact on their environment. And the first way you learn that is by refusing, right? That no, I don't want that. And comes before yes, or even a conditional answer, right? Conditional answers is what um, a lot of people like aim for Mm -hmm. the like, okay, I'll do it. But after that, can we do this? Right. Or the, okay, yeah, we can do that one time, but I might not like it that much, you know, but that is a complicated answer for, um, for a child. And and this, this kid, when we first started working with him, Aaron, he was like four ish. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we had never heard the word no. And to be four years old and to have never been able to express to somebody when you don't want something consistently, it's tough. That is tough. That is four years of people doing things to you that you don't want to have happen and having no consistent way to express that. Um, and so when we heard the word no, that was one of those, those win moments, right? And then from the swing, it just exploded. And you know, it, Aaron is the first one to tell me this, well, to, to really teach me the difference between communication and language, because in the OT world, we don't really differentiate. I think we do in treatment, but we don't really 
spend as much time talking about like the difference between communication and language, right? And so this kid for for years had been communicating and what he was interested in, what he liked. So we already knew he loved Mario. He loved cars. He loved, sometimes he loved superheroes, almost any animated movie he was into. But we couldn't tell what he wanted to do unless we joined him there first, right? So we, from the swing and no, we just jumped into the world of of cars and Lightning McQueen and transportation and then moved our bodies a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. There is some research that points to the fact that the vestibular system plays a role in your development of the sense of agency and also a huge role in your language development as well. And so um, if that is not interdisciplinary collaboration, I don't know what is because, you know, mm-hmm. geez, you're famous for the swings. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we moved our bodies a lot. Mm-hmm. Right, Erin? Yeah, well, and I get kids right now from an EI perspective that either that have they're seeing me first because they have delayed language, delayed speech, but I watch them and they're either kids who are constantly moving their bodies because they don't know where their body is in space. So they're just trying to find boundaries. Those kids are sprinting around the clinic, climbing, jumping, twisting that because they reach no threshold with their system. They're trying to feel regulated, but they can't get enough input to feel secure in their bodies. Or the kids who sit back and because they know that they don't have the ideation or the motor skills to do something, they, they wait. So they don't have this language because they either haven't stopped their bodies to observe or they haven't taken those own experiences to be able to have something happen and give meaning to it. Because the big thing that we talk about are um, some of the lectures we give are called meaning making. How do we create this play and language? is a symbol for meaning. So how do, if a child doesn't have meaning behind what they're doing because they don't have balance and they they don't feel, because language is so symbolic, you have to know where your body is and feel secure. And that's the highest level of sensory. That's interoception. That's how am I, how do I feel? Where is my body? Do I hurt? So if kids don't have the understanding of vestibular, where their head is moving, their balance, tactile, how things feel, or proprioceptive, where their joints are and where their body is, they don't build that interoception to understand themselves. So that's why movement is, if we're not helping them with their bodies, sometimes I have kids that are much older that appear, I have one child I worked with who had so much language, but we weren't on the same page. He was very pro-social, which was a, a characteristic of his genetic diagnosis. And so he wanted to interact with people all the time. So he'd say, yes, he'd tell you he was understanding you. But the only things he would remember, if I asked him what he did in therapy, were things that carried big emotion. The only thing he could tell me about school was the drill that they did because it 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 was stressful to him. So we just went and did, we did the swing, we crashed, we jumped, we gave words to what his body was doing so that he could start to to understand that. And I had to learn from OT because unfortunately, we don't get that education about sensory as speech pathologists. We should, but we don't because as Karen would say, Jane Ayers, who was fundamental in the research in sensory, became an OT, but she took it from psychology. So it's, yeah. 
So it's not because, you know, OTs own this. It's just because that's where the education led. And we're missing so many things. Kids may be saying all these words, but do they really understand them? Do they, are we really sharing the same meaning? And the child we worked with was a Gestalt language processor. So he processed things in scripts and, and they had to, the thing that I love about the Gestalt language processors I work with are they have to have emotion behind them, that it has to feel and resonate with them. That's why these are the kids that imitate all the swear words. Because when mom says the F word, they're like, oh, you felt that just yeah, like I did. So that. that must be the, yes, you meant that. And so we have to be with them and really feel the emotion. Like I get to play. And the thing we're learning about our gestalt language processors is that they also process memories in chunks. So for him, we started with these play schemas that he understood from cars so that we could build problem solving into it so that he, we could build sequencing within something that he was comfortable with and understood. Because if we tried to switch games or tried to switch topics too much, it wouldn't always carry over because it's not the individual skill that's always carrying over. It's them developing within this deep play schema and and gestalt that they have essentially. Yeah. Gestalt learners also from an OT perspective, my kids who are gestalt language learners are gestalt motor learners. They do not learn individual motor skills. They learn them in chunks. And there is some component of that, that that's just the way all of our brains get wired, but some are more wired that way than others. So when you learn a motor task, you learn something in, called um, a, a motor synergy, right? Like when you go to reach for your coffee cup, you don't have to think about every angle of your hand and your arm to reach for that coffee cup because you've done it so many times, you can adjust without really thinking. The challenge is what if you had learned how to reach for one coffee cup and you couldn't tease apart all of your your joints, right, and tell exactly what happened? Well, then if the cup changes, you don't know how to pick it up, right? So if your brain learns things in chunks and something changes, then it's hard for your brain to learn to adapt. So where Aaron and I have jumped in together with kids is, okay, we'll join you in the chunk. And then we're going to help break that chunk up into its pieces so that you can adapt them, right? And we can use, so um, if we, and this is something we'll talk about again in the Middle East Peace Summit, if we think about a task and analyze the whole task, then we can identify commonalities in these activities that this kid is motivated by in order to understand what chunks are you processing, Right. And then your job as a clinician is to say, all right, you got this. This is what you understand. So my next guess is to try it a little bit at a different angle and see what happens, right? Keep the chunks the same, change one thing until you can handle multiple things being changed about that task and understanding the differences and adapt to that. Mm -hmm. So, and that that is just motor learning, just in a different way than the way that OTs even are taught about it. Mm -hmm. So it's been a real joy to be able to watch this kid that Aaron and I treated together for so long. It was so clear in his case when that gestalt started to have more and more individual meanings paired with it because his body started doing more individual things. 
and we could adapt it a little bit and he would join us there. Um, so for example, one day, uh, we had been playing on the slide and he thought it was hilarious that he kept falling down the slide and I would put my hand down from the top. He's trying to climb up. I'm at the top of the slide and he'd slide down and I'd be like, Oh no, you fell down here. Grab my hand. Oh. Right. And so we've got some tactile support. We've got vestibular and probe because we're working against gravity. Our, the angle of our head is changing. We're sliding up and down and he's touching my hand, right? Tactile all over his body too, his feet on the slide, everything. He thinks it's hilarious, just starts cackling. So he keeps falling down, right? We probably did that for like an hour. And then the next time we came back, I was ready. And I had a rope this time. So we started with my hand, started with my hand, started with my hand, throw him a rope, see if he can grab that and pull up, right? So that that meaning of the word pull starts to get associated with the activity that we're doing, not just the materials, not just my hand, not just the rope. So then we swapped it out. What, Aaron? We tried to use everything. A hula hoop. We tried to use a hula hoop. Pool noodle. And he's learning that different objects can have can do the same thing, that I don't just need one object. And so cognitively, we're building that idea that I can problem solve if I want to do one thing by using different objects. And that just expands his world from, wait, this is, I only supposed to pull with my hand, but now these other objects that can blow his mind. He's like, okay, wait, let me expand on this in general. So I think we probably spent like what, three or four hours of session time on that slide working on pool, right? And then once he got the idea of pool, we changed another component of that activity, right? We moved from the slide to a scooter board. And so now I'm pulling you and your body is moving, but the materials are different again, right? And it's got a different kind of meaning because now you're moving through space rather than in the same 10 foot space, right? Yeah. Area. And it's important to know the patience of that. Like I had to learn a lot from Karen to give him time to, because he needs to understand this at a deep level. And I remember being the speech therapist that like when something didn't work, I wanted to move on very quickly because I was like, wait, this isn't working. Like I need to try something else. But the thing that we recognize, especially in learning through floor time is we're developing these problem solving skills, these bigger capacities of understanding. So it's not just we're teaching him the word pull, we're teaching him these problem solving ideas, we're teaching him affordances of objects. So it's not just the vocabulary, it's not just the motor pattern. And then that's going to carry over into other aspects when he, when his brain starts to process it that way. So it seems like, wait, you spent four sessions on pull, like he needs to develop all this other language, but we're, we're spending those sessions on working on this capacity to learn so that he can use it in other ways. And what, yes. sorry, yeah. I, I, I love this. Sorry, we can talk forever. So I know you could, and I, and I can listen to you forever too. Is this, do you explain this in this way to the parents? Yes. Yes. 
Gosh, because I feel like what you're saying now makes so much sense to some stuff. And Karen, I'm not going to lie. I fired a lot of OTs in my day with my son because I did not. I was like, what is this doing? But like Karen's also a very fantastic occupational therapist. Like there are not all like Karen. Yeah. And and I don't know. Like now I'm just like, shoot, maybe they did know what they were doing, but they didn't like I kept saying, like, why are you doing this? What is this targeting? And I just wasn't getting enough. But they should be able to explain right, it. To right. Like, and I just was like, I should be able to explain what I'm doing to anybody to, and, and to understand the parents' understanding to be able to bring it to where their, their level of understanding. Like, my, like in my brain, and this is, I mean, this is probably part, this is my problems, my personal problems. Like, I think, okay, I'm spending all this money to take my son to this private session. At the time we were driving like an hour and a half round trip to this clinic, like this is a lot of freaking time and a lot of freaking money for me to not understand why we're doing this and for me to not be seeing progress. Right. And like, I don't, now I don't know, like, I don't know if maybe they were doing the right things. Yeah. No, to be fair, Teresa, though, our job is, was not just do this in the session. Like our job was to pull in the parent and help them understand so they could carry it over because what we're doing in an hour was not what was everything to him. It was mom seeing this. It was mom seeing his ideas and her being able to better understand him. So to be fair, if you weren't understanding it and you weren't able to carry it over, I don't think that's effective therapy at all. Yeah. It's a relationship too. Like what we were just talking about right now the people listening and you can jump on with because you're a clinician, right? Yeah. yeah. When talking to a parent who doesn't have a background in where we're coming from, right? Because our conversation started at a level that like, all right, we're going to assume you have this much base knowledge, right? When you're talking with a parent, you have to find just what Aaron was talking about. You have to find those windows of where can we connect over this? I would argue nine times out of 10, that is fine where that kid feels joy and that parent wants their kid to be happy, right? So if you can help that parent understand this is where the joy is coming from, do you see how their brain is processing this? Those little nuggets over time help the parent get to where we're talking about. I mean, most of the parents that Aaron and I ended up working with can talk about this and understand where we're going, Right. Yeah, I think it's why I have such a fantastic relationship with with his team now, with everybody in place now, because like it's it's so informal and easy. Like they'll just text me something like, oh, my gosh, you'll never believe what he did today. Like, try doing this tonight. Let me know how it goes. And it's just, I'm like, oh, my God, thank you so much for that. But like, I understand what they're doing and why now, I think. And what's, you know, to your point, Karen, what's what's really interesting. And I, I try to figure this out all the time. But one of the things I always say to everybody is like, please, like if you didn't what stinks is sometimes people will see like, you know, profession, like, oh, you're an SLP. So like, I try to write that I'm not one on some of those forms because I'll tell people like, please forget that I'm an SLP. I'm a parent. Like I'm mom. Cause what's so interesting is like my brain completely separates the two unless I try to merge them. Like my mom therapy brain does not operate the same way as my SLP brain. And like, sometimes I have to sit back and think like, okay, this does make sense. Like if I look at it from an SLP lens, but naturally it doesn't go there. It goes there just from like a mom brain lens. So like mm-hmm. I was just say, I'm like, talk to me. Like I'm a mom that knows nothing about the therapy world. Like, yeah, just, you know, pretend I'm like a, a banker or something. I know nothing about therapy. Like, 
But I love that you've been able to do that because the amount of times I even have conversations with parents who aren't therapists and I say, your job is to be this child's mom. Yeah. Do not. And, and that's what we love about what we do is because it, it feels less technical. Like I'm not sitting here giving the parent recommendations to do this strategy that, that we, that I learned in school. And it's very technical. I'm teaching the parent how do you connect with your child and how do you understand their brain so you can just play with them? So it doesn't feel any different or technical. It just feels like, because when we're in these sessions, like it is the most joy. I am laughing. I am excited. I feel so lucky to just get to understand this child and our favorite day that we always like to talk about. And the thing with this kid too, that was so wonderful is it's all about relationship. The reason he got to where he was, was because of the relationship we built with him and the relationship we built with mom. We would even have days where like Karen and I would say to each other, he's kind of off today. And then we would look at each other and be like, are we off today? Mm -hmm. Maybe it's actually me. And I didn't realize, and he was just so in tune with me. And there were so many days where he had these ideas that it took us 45 minutes to get to his idea. But because he trusted us, And because we developed all these different ways of communicating, we worked through it because he knew we were going to figure it out and we weren't going to give up on him. And that's why I'm so passionate about, we should be called communication pathologists instead of speech language pathologists, because it, so much of our communication isn't language. Mm -hmm. It's nonverbal, it's motor. And so I want him to know that all of his communication is valuable and I get to understand that. And And he would literally come to our sessions from ABA with, with an idea, like something he wanted to create. And one day he came with a literal piece of paper. He had a notepad and he had a piece of paper and he saw me first that day. And I'm not a good crafter. So okay, he woke up in the morning, got a piece of paper from his house, took it with him to ABA. Okay. Came from ABA to the clinic with the same piece of paper and shows up to Aaron with this piece of paper he's been toning around since 730. Okay. And we sit at the table. And at this point, he would sing like three to four word phrases, but very like because of that, what we thought was apraxia. Um, there wasn't a lot of fluency in it. So he would sit there and he'd be like, circle around, circle around. So I drew a circle and I cut out the outside of the circle. And he was like, no, 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 no. Circle around, stop, cut inside. So I cut the inside of the circle, tape ear, tape ear. So we, we ended up putting a circle around his face and I was like, okay, like I'm still really, I don't know what's happening. So I pulled in one of my coworkers who's much better at crafting. Cause I, I, my thumb is messed up. I'm not good with things like that. And so eventually he would be like, tape feet, paper, tape feet, pointed to his feet. We taped first, we taped each foot and then he wanted them. No, 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 no two feet tape. So we taped his foot and all of a sudden, and this took just getting those two pieces of paper took like 30 minutes. So then he starts jumping. He starts like bouncing around. And there were at this point, like there were a bunch of therapists around because he's just so fun. And someone goes walking around with a like, not the circle part that she cut out, but the outside of the paper. With the yes. Circle. It was like a square around his minutes, face right? and so. then his a thing for his head. And he's like hopping around and someone looks at him and goes, oh, he's the Pixar lamp. So he saw the Pixar lamp and wanted to become the Pixar lamp and had this idea that he could take this piece of paper and turn it into him embodying this character. 
And so he'd go boop and he'd turn the light off and he'd jump around and he'd say light on and boop. And so Karen saw this disaster of a crash and I had passed him on to her. And I didn't have a kid at the end of the session. So we went over to the other clinic where she was at and I'll let her tell you. Then we turned it into this huge ideation. He he just had, and this was the thing that, this is one of those things. Again, I guess Horton, here's a who's my thing today, right? Like a person is a person and a person has ideas. And so this was one of those days where he had like this giant idea that before he had no way of communicating to people. And then when he could get it out, it was just like, idea we never planned therapy sessions because no. he yeah he planned them in his brain and so he came over to ot that day and i went aha i've got a big roll of paper and he got so excited i brought out this mm-hmm. giant roll of paper we end up wrapping him in paper and making this like giant tube for his head so he really looks like the light and then i had a flashlight at my desk so he tells me to tape it in the middle so he's got like a light bulb now over his face and he looks at us and he goes, hmm, let's go over there. And I said, where? He goes, it's dark. So he started to play around with the idea of taking the Pixar lamp, which he had been jumping like the Pixar lamp this whole time, and really understanding what a lamp does and goes into a dark place. He goes in this dark room and he goes, oh, wow. Like with the light, light exploring this dark room and we wrote the word Pixar out with blocks and he jumped on top of the eye just like it does. You know, so we really played around with the symbolic idea of what would it be like to be this lamp, right? What do you do, lamp? What is your function? How can you participate in a world as a lamp? And from that day on, that child became so adaptable. Like he started to understand the world in a whole new way because he'd taken on a new perspective. He'd understood how objects can work and then also how it was animated like a person, you know? So it it was just crazy to see his problem solving ex- explode. But that day left Aaron and I in tears because it was so unique to see him use something. Because like I said at the beginning, any animated movie he was into, right? Lightning McQueen had been his thing for for years at this point. He'd watched this lamp jump on that eye for six years at this point. And that lamp had certain meaning and safety and security in it that then he wanted to embody, right? Because those movies were his safe place. These things had a lot of meaning to him. And so when he became the thing that had meaning and safety to him, all of a sudden, we were just in tears about how beautiful it is that he learned to become what was safe to himself. Mm -hmm. No longer did this movie have that power. He had that power. And that's something that will always make me cry. Here I am. Because that's what, that's what our goal is, right? To make these kids adaptable and function. And they have to own their own safety. Yeah. And kids like to play all the, I mean, how many kids love to dress up as something and be something. And a lot of the kids we work with, like, just don't have all of those other skills that it takes to do that on their own. And that's okay. But like, if we help them get there, then they feel confident that they can do that on their own. And 
for him to feel so safe and trust us. So trust us with his beautiful ideas to trust us that we were going to help him become this thing that he never thought he could was like a gift that we will literally never take. Like I will never be able to thank him for what he, and Rachel Dorsey, who's an autistic SLP talks about this autistic joy is also look, it's magical. Like when you see an autistic child, like really feel this joy, you are like, and, and when you go from seeing that to like, you never go back. I will never be able to go back to how I thought therapy looked before because it, it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of patience and it takes a lot of like bigger understanding of that child as a whole. But when I meet a child for the first time in an eval, I will say to a parent, I don't know. This is a tiny, tiny picture of, of who your child is. And I'm not going to tell you that I know anything about them after this eval because they're worth so much more than that. And when I talk about neurodiversity affirming and feeding therapy in the lecture I gave a couple weeks ago, I talk about like, you can't turn an apple tree into a cherry tree. And when a tree is little, if you didn't plant it, you don't always know who it's, what it's going to turn into. And our job isn't to change that tree into something different. Our job is to give it the right fertilizer and water and sunlight that it needs, that mm-hmm. it's telling us it needs so it can grow into the tree that it wants to be or the, the person that we got, got to learn about who he is. We didn't change him. We just helped him feel authentic and feel that again, like he had power and control. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. There's two things, two points I want to make. I I think one thing for me that is so dang triggering, and and I'm so glad you just acknowledged this is like filling out those like intake forms, the patient intake forms, like, you know, you'll have someone just send you a link to a portal and you just have to type, you know, the whole traumatic pregnancy I had with him, the whole traumatic birth I had with him, the whole traumatic NICU stay I had with him. And like that, going back to that place is the ugliest place I've ever been in my life. And I, I, I've gotten to the point now that I'll, I'll tell therapists like, Hey, like, can we just do this over the phone? Because like, I need it to be a dialogue. Like, I don't want to just type it into cyberspace, but what I, what I hate and what I've realized, like through a lot of therapy, what I hate so much about that is that paints this picture of this really sick, frail little boy. And that is not like the people that know my son, he is just so fun and so full of life. And like, I don't like the depiction of that. I don't like the picture that that paints because then I think people are like, oh, this was really dramatic. Like he must be like, have a lot of, you know, medical complexities. And I'm like, no, he's totally happy and healthy. He just doesn't walk or talk like, you know, and so I I hate that. So I, I, I'm really like passionate about sort of moving away from that and into a more like empathetic evaluation model, because that is just so traumatic to deal with. But then one of your other things to your point about, you know, we shouldn't, you don't like speech language, you like communication. And that's, I have that conversation all the time. Like I will say, I communicate with my son. Like we, we communicate. (laughs) He doesn't say words, but I know what he wants. I know Mm -hmm. what things mean. I know what noises mean. I know what, facial expressions mean. I know what, you know, when he reaches for things, I know what that means. Like he has so many meanings that I know of. And so like, 
I know people don't mean it disrespectfully when they say like, well, how do you understand him? Because he doesn't talk. And I'm like, right. I understand. But it is an able, it's an ableist view that we have to start to shift from because we're viewing it as. Yeah. And I'm like, I understand him perfectly. I understand him probably more than I understand my daughter who speaks 9 million. Yes. Like, so it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I, I love this work that you guys are doing and like my mommy heart is just bleeding out for you. So thank you so, so much for sort of understanding you know, just, just these kids and, and understanding them for who they are, because they're just, a lot of people don't understand them. And I, and I love your point, Erin, too. I think, you know, there was this traditional therapy model, right? Like you, you sit in a chair, you sit next mm-hmm. to this kid, you do these rote, you know, exercises, repeat this word, or what color is this? Or, you know, I just think of all those like painstaking activities I used to do with kids in the schools and to say, I don't, you know, I might be out of line for saying it's totally ineffective, but for a lot of these kids, it's totally ineffective, right? (laughs) And so I love your, you know, this, this whole new, I don't even know if I should say fresh approach, but it truly is because I don't think we learn about this as much as we Mm -mm. should. And I know the whole sensory aspect to me, like, I know I don't work with kids. I work with, you know, adults and swallowing and things like that, but I had no exposure to the sensory world, none until I had my, my own son. Mm -hmm. So much sense. Yeah. And it's just neuroscience. Sensory yeah. is just neuroscience, but the the lingo and the words around it are just now catching up back together. Okay. So like back when Jean Ayers was around, she was originally like a, a, a neuroscience psych person. And then she was also an OT and she took this theory and put words to it that then the science and the fMRI studies are literally just catching back up to. So for, for example, there's a study that came out a couple of years ago about cerebellar differences in children on the spectrum, which explains vestibular seeking and balance difficulties, postural difficulties that we have seen clinically for a really, really long time. But literally four years ago is the first time we saw in the brain where that was happening, right? Yeah. And so we're, we are on the cusp of being able to understand these kids in a whole new way. But as a clinician, you have to be willing to sit back and have a, this is going to sound weird, but like a posture of humility that this kid is going to teach you about their body. You don't know about their body. They're going to teach you, mm-hmm. right? And and then also one other thing is, is that no brain really learns through just rote performance of something over and over again. If that were true, then like, man, we should all have fantastic handwriting, right? Yeah. But we don't. So why not, right? Like everybody's brain learns differently. And so deciding to say, I don't have a model for what my therapy sessions are going to look like other than I'm going to find out where this kid's at and then use the best science that I have to take them to the next level, right? And then that requires continual learning and a lot of self-reflection, which is not Mm -hmm. always easy, you know, especially as a therapist to go out to a family and say, I messed up. Mm-hmm. Woo, that's hard, right? Because yeah. that family's put a lot of trust in you and to walk out there and be like, I messed up. I pushed them too hard today. Yeah. They're going to be mad at you on the way home. And I am sorry. Yeah. And I think, and honestly, those are some of like my most favorite therapists, the one that really just checked their ego at the door. And they, because so my, my son's condition, there's only one of nine cases of this condition in the world when he was first born. Now I think there's like 40 but, you know, so many therapists are like, well, tell me about his condition. Like what, you know, what research is all about? like it doesn't exist, you know, and even like the neonatologist when he was born was just like, Teresa, this is every documented case study. He could be 
on a trade, an event with severe cardiac issues, he could, you know, be fully functioning, you know, working someday. We truly don't know where he's going to fall on the spectrum. But I think the therapists that I respected the most were the ones that were just like, we don't know about this condition, but we're going to just go with what he presents with and we're going to run with it and I'm going to learn what I can and we're going to let him take the lead. And just what the therapist that I heard that from really mm-hmm. like inspired me so much more than the therapists that were like, this is the plan and this is what he's going to do. And this is what he's going to accomplish. And I'm just like, you don't know that. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> so And that puts him in a box that yeah. puts him yeah. in a box of these, like, and you talked about so much and in, in filling out those forms. We have to stop having these preconceived notions of what a child is going to look like and what their outcomes are. Because I have seen the magic of working with kids is like, I have seen kids develop in ways that like, I never would have imagined. I never, I presume competence and I never assume they can't do something Mm -hmm. because they're going to show me. And and like you said, we have so many kids with these diagnoses that we've never heard of. So what do we do? We watch them. We learn about them. We, we're we not going to have all the answers. And I would rather it be that way so that they can guide us and they can show us where they are. And all you do is work within their zone of proximal development. I push you a little bit and see where you are, but I build relationship first and I let you trust me first. Because if I'm trying to challenge you and we have no relationship, like we're not getting anywhere. Kids deserve to have trust and they deserve to feel safe. And so that's our number one thing too, that I want people to take is like, it's okay to spend time building relationship first. You're a good therapist for doing that because it may take a while to see progress, but you're not going to get anywhere if you don't. And with the parent, with the caregiver, like both, because our job is to help the caregiver see things in their child that unfortunately they weren't might not have been able to see because their focus and all they heard was the things their child couldn't do. So when I'm in that session, I'm saying, look at how he looks at you and connects with you. I'm so, it's so wonderful that you guys have this relationship and I'm, I'm telling them all these positive things I'm seeing because you may think they know that, but they still need to hear that because they've heard so much. That's not that for so long. And so that's very important. Yeah. Thank thank you for harping on that point, because I think what's interesting is like my son, if he loves you, he loves you. If he doesn't like you, he will not do a dang thing for you. And we call him that he's in potato mode. Like, and so it's interesting. We, we just had a switch. One of our, one of the PTs had to go out for a little while to go leave of absence. So we brought in a new PT and, you know, she's like, I think he's going to love the new PT. And so the PT brought in a new OT and the OT said to me, you know, what, you know, how do I establish rapport with him? Like what really makes him work? And I'm like, that's not something I can answer for you. I said, to be honest, I said, he's a tough kid to crack, but when you crack him, he, he loves you to pieces. I said, but if you can't crack him, if you can't establish that rapport with him, he will not do a dang thing for you. And, and I can't convince him otherwise. Like, and that's just honestly the the best honest truth I can give because the therapist that he trusts and he has that rapport with, he does amazing things with. And then there's others that we've had to just say like, this isn't a good fit. He doesn't feel safe with you. And I don't, I can't tell you why that is. He just, I don't know if you haven't established that, if there's something that he feels is off, but he will not do a dang thing for, for some of those. Mm-hmm. And there's room too, because certain personalities click together and some don't. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It may not always be. I mean, there are some kids that on my caseload, I'm like, oh yeah, we're jiving. And other kids, I'm like, I can make this work, yeah. but it is work for both of us, right? And so there is some 
there is some room you have to, you have to balance the, am I the best fit for you? And the like self-reflection of what can I do to do this better? Right. Because just because something isn't easy, doesn't mean that you need to pass that kid off to a different therapist. Mm -hmm. Right. It may mean that this kid is on your caseload for you to learn something. Right. And for you to um, take that lesson and apply it to become a better therapist. On the other hand, sometimes there is room for like, this fit isn't as good. And I think I know who would be a better fit. Right. I will say he had one therapist that he was like, this isn't going to go well. Like, and and I, I was like, this is not going to go well. Like I might as well start looking for another one already. And she proved me wrong within like a few weeks. Mm. She sent me this email, like he did all this stuff. And then I happened to see her at drop off one day and he was so excited he like went right into his device and started talking. And I was like, oh my God. I was like, dang, like, dang it, buddy. Like you totally, <laughs> you proved me wrong with this one. But like, I'm glad that I yep. gave, you know, I let him show me, you know, I didn't just go and fire this person because I thought it wasn't a good fit. But yeah, it's, it's a, it, it, this is a whole, like, it's a whole journey in real, like self-reflection. Yeah. On, on both ends. So, Yeah. Yeah. It is a journey and it is self-reflection and it can be beautiful, but it just requires, I mean, honestly, it requires all of the team to do that, right? If you have one therapist really committed to that self-reflective interdisciplinary model, then great. But if all of them, it is like magic when that can all happen at the same time. Mm -hmm. All right. Oh my gosh. You guys are wonderful. We could talk all day. I'm sure. (laughs) I know. Thank you so much for everything that you guys provided. And I'm so excited to hear your summit talk. And thank you so much for presenting at the summit. Any, any final thoughts you want to share? Anything we didn't, didn't cover? I don't think so. I think the biggest thing is, especially when you do this type of therapy, you have to really be willing to look inward because you're going to discover a lot of things about yourself that maybe you weren't ready to address, or maybe, you know, I go see a therapist myself because I want to make sure that like I'm recognizing my triggers and my trauma and how I'm responding to things. Because if you are burying things, I will tell you the kids you work with will feel it. They're very in tune. And so sometimes something happens in the session. You're like, wait, why did that affect me? And that's okay. It's really, we work with kids that, and I'm an empath. So like, I feel things that like, I can't you know, you, you can't always control that. And so recognizing, always taking time to be like, what could I have done? Or sometimes maybe it's just not the right fit and it's not my fault. And so I, I love Teresa that you recognize too, when it's not the right fit and advocate for your son. Cause I can tell you, there's so many kids where like, I keep trying to make it work. And sometimes I like can tell the parent doesn't really feel I'm a fit. And I try to have that conversation, but they don't feel that they have the agency to say, you know what, let's see if we can find somebody else. It's nothing wrong with either party. It's just not always, I'm a, you know, not always the right fit. So give yourself grace and just take your time. Like we're always learning and just starting on this journey is, is a great step. Yeah. Yeah. And then so far as the summit goes, if you want to hear more, Come hang out. We're going to dive into sensory. We're going to dive into show some videos, task analysis. We're going to dive into videos and talking through this kid a little bit uh, more. And you'll actually get to see him too. So come along. Thank you so much, you guys. Yeah, we could talk all day. So yeah. All right. 
We'll let you get ready for work, Karen. Thank you so much, you guys. I appreciate you so, so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was a, a great opportunity. Thanks for having us on. And that's a wrap for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email list so that you'll never miss another episode. If you do like what you hear, then please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or share it on social media with your friends and colleagues because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week.